Deuteronomy chapter number 11. And I'd like to begin reading. We're just going to read verses 16 and 17 of this chapter. The Lord is instructing the nation of Israel. And He says to them in verse 16 of Deuteronomy chapter 11, Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived. And ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you. And He shut up the heaven that there be no rain and that the land yield not her fruit lest ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you. I thank you for this privilege to be in your house. Now, Lord, I believe you've met us here uh, providentially, deliberately. I believe you seek to meet us powerfully, Lord, and effectually, but much of that depends on us, our willingness to open our hearts to the truth of your word. So I pray, Lord, most of all this morning, that we would do our part in making ourselves ready and available and receptive to the preached Word. And I pray, Lord, that You would, in Your power, in Your might, manifest Your presence in this place and speak directly to hearts that which would draw us closer to Thee and which would bring You the most glory. We'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, in a group this size, and our church people know I don't always pray this way, but in a group this size, there could be somebody who's trusting themselves to get them to heaven. Trust in their baptism, their good works, Lord, their, their religion to get them to heaven. Trusting that they're a good person and trusting the uh, straw man of their own concept of theology that they've built up in their mind. I pray, Lord, that you in loving mercy would shatter every one of those crutches and, and false pillars. Lord, I pray that this morning you'd show them that Christ is the only answer. Lord, that they would turn to you in faith, accept your Son as their Savior, that they'd be gloriously born again. Lord, I love you and I thank you for this time that you've given us. We trust everything to you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Look with me at verse number 16. I want you to notice a phrase, just three small words that are found here. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy says, Take heed to yourselves that your heart, notice these next three words, be not deceived. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived. This is the first time that these three words are found in a trio together as a phrase in the Word of God. But you'll find that if you study through the Word of God on five separate occasions, God gives the injunction to His people to be not deceived. Can I tell you this morning that we are living in a day of mass deception? We are living in a day when the truth doesn't carry much weight, but a lie carries a lot of weight in the world around us. We're living in a day where if you can construct a lie that makes people feel good, that makes them feel good about themselves, that makes them feel comfortable, that does not rock their world, that does not alter their perspective, then they are uh, very willing, more than willing, to sell the truth to purchase that lie, to sell their integrity to purchase that lie. We live in a day where a large group of the world around us are deceived in various manners. Can I say to you this morning that there is, I think, a tendency for us as God's people to look at deception as though it is simply the jurisdiction and simply the pitfall of the lost crowd. But the fact of the matter is this, that deception is something that is a danger, that is a possibility that all men have a propensity towards, regardless of whether they're saved or lost. Now, I'm going to tell you this morning, I am glad that the Holy Ghost takes up residence in your life and mine when we're born again. But that does not mean that we are immune to deception. We do have a light the light of the Spirit of God, the light of Scripture that shines in our life in opposition to the darkness of deception. But that does not mean that we are immune to it. It does not mean that we cannot deceive ourselves concerning certain things. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts about a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who sold a piece of property and they kept back part of it. It wasn't a problem that they kept back part of the land. In fact, Peter tells them that. He says, you could have kept back part of the land. The problem was this. He said, you lied to God and you lied to the Holy Ghost. How many of you know this? There's a lot of folks that lie to the Holy Ghost. And they do so by lying to themselves. There might be some folks even this morning sitting in these pews that before this service is over, the Spirit of God is going to be speaking distinctly, directly to your heart. And you're going to lie to Him and say, I'm alright. I don't need to change. I don't need to give my heart to Christ. I don't need to get this uh, matter out of my life. I'm okay. And very quickly, the human heart runs to the shelter and refuge of self-deception. I believe that deception is a great 
possibility and a great pitfall. Even if you're saved, I believe you can deceive yourself, but I believe the world at large is living under a cloud of deception. In fact, the Bible says that one of these days, when the Holy Ghost is removed from this earth in His influence in the local church, that one of these days, uh, the whole world is going to be given over to a lie, that the whole world is going to be given over to a strong delusion when the Antichrist comes. Deception is always a danger and possibility in the human heart. And somebody's going to say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher. You don't know me. I mean, listen, I've been around. I'm, I'm learned. I know the Word of God. Can I read two scriptures before we even get into the preaching? Listen to what Paul said in first or in second Corinthians chapter number 11. He was describing false teachers and he said, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Let me say this before we even get any further. Not everybody that says they're a Christian are a Christian. Not everybody that says they're a preacher is a preacher, not a true preacher. Not everybody that claims to preach the truth is a preacher of the truth. Uh, The devil has some that are transforming themselves into the servants of Christ, that are wolves putting on sheep's clothing. And then Paul says this, no marvel. He says, that shouldn't surprise us. For Satan himself, he says, is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. You might say, preacher, I'm too smart to get hoodwinked. I'm too smart to be deceived. Paul said, you better watch out because even the devil himself can make himself appear as an angel of light. You might say, well, that, listen, preacher, that's true, but you don't know me. I mean, my heart's given to the Lord and, and, and there's no way that any deception can creep into my heart. And how many times do you hear people say this? I know my own heart. I I try to be careful saying that. I try to say, if I know my own heart. But I hear people say all the time, well, I know my own heart. People say, follow your heart. What does the Bible say about that? Listen to what the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful. Your heart is deceitful. My heart is deceitful. The whole world that is clamoring, saying, follow your heart, they're telling you to follow something that's deceitful. Your heart can deceive you. My heart can deceive me. The heart is deceitful above all things. I I will tell you this. You will sooner buy a lie that you've told yourself than you will buy a lie that someone else has told you. You will sooner buy a lie that you are telling yourself than you will buy a lie that someone else is telling you. Your heart is desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. It's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And then he asks this question, who can know it? People say, I know my own heart. You don't. Nor do I know mine. In fact, I can only get a right assessment of what's in my heart as I lay it aside, the immutable truth of God's Word. Only God's Word as a natural glass, I beholding myself in it, can I get a right judgment of myself. Here's what I'm trying to say. We can all be deceived. I don't care who you are. I don't care how long you've been in church. I don't care how many relatives you got that was preachers or deacons or Sunday school teachers. I don't care how many times you read your Bible through. We can all be deceived. And that's why it's so imperative that we stay close to the Word of God. There are deceitful preachers. There are deceitful teachers. There are deceitful movements out there. We all need to stay close to the truth of the Word of God because there's not a one of us that's above being deceived. Now, what are some of the areas that we might be deceived in? I want to give you these five things and I'll be done this morning. Five times in God's Word, God says, be not deceived. So what is God concerned with mankind being deceived about? I believe the first one we have here in Deuteronomy chapter 11 We might say it this way, be not deceived concerning the path to heaven. Now, I'll tell you that God is dealing with the children of Israel here in Deuteronomy chapter 11. They are an earthly people. They are not a heavenly people, they are an earthly people. God's promises to the earthly nation of Israel are earthly promises. But I do believe as God gives this spiritual injunction to them concerning serving other gods, that we have some language that at the very least reminds us of some spiritual truths. Let's read it again in Deuteronomy 11. He says, Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and ye what? Turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. 
God says you need to be careful because the world is going to clamor about you. The world is going to bombard you with all sorts of systems of religion and is going to tell you that those gods that they have concocted and constructed and have uh, created out of the figment of their imagination, that those gods are gods like our God. That those gods are equivalent. How many of you know that one of the common lines today is that all roads lead to heaven, that all religions are basically the same, that you can believe what you want, I can believe what I want as long as we're sincere and as long as we're kind-hearted and as long as we give a few coins to the bum on the street and we try to do good works, that that's good enough, that'll get us to heaven. The world is preaching today a gospel of universalism, a gospel of uh, multi-religions, a gospel that is no gospel at all, it is no true gospel, a gospel that claims that you can believe anything you want and that it'll get you to heaven. And God warns in His Word against this deception upon His people and upon the world at large. He said, you better nail it down that there is only one path to heaven. It's not you believe anything that you want to believe. Uh, 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 several uh, big preachers, they think they are, several famous preachers got in trouble over the last few years uh, because they were questioned about this issue of do all roads lead to heaven? Uh, one preacher was asked, what about the Muslims? Do they go to heaven? He demurred. He said, I'm sorry, I just can't. I, I, I don't know. I, he said, I don't tell people they're going to hell and going to heaven. Let me tell you something. If the man of God with the Bible in his hand can tell people who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, then who can? I don't mean looking at an individual and saying, you, Jerry, you, Mike, you, whoever it might be, you are going to hell. I mean taking a Bible and saying, this is the way to heaven. And if you don't go this way, you won't go at all. What did Jesus say about it? He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He said, what a positive message. Then he turned around and he said, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. People say, you know, well, I just really can't say. And he said, I don't tell people that they're going to heaven. I don't tell people that they're going to hell. Another famous preacher was asked the very same question by the very same man. He said, I, you know, listen, it was on Larry King. He said, Larry, I don't, Larry, I, I don't know. I'll tell you this. I've been to India and I've seen those people and, and they know God. And he, that big seven mile long smile, they know God. Well, not if they don't know Jesus Christ, they don't. They may be good people. They, listen, they got more discipline than you if they ain't eating beef. Somebody say amen there. But that don't mean they're on the way to heaven. The fact of the matter is, there is one criteria for whether we get to heaven or not, and that's whether we know Christ and have given our heart and life to Him. God warns His people concerning the path to heaven. And notice this, I think it's interesting. Three words that are given here in this, or three phrases in these verses. Look what it says in verse number 17. Now remember, He's talking to earthly people about earthly matters. But if we understand that as the church, we are not an earthly people, we are a heavenly people, and we apply these to the heavenly principles, I believe we have an interesting line of thought here. He says this in verse 17, And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you. So he says, if you start following other gods, God's wrath is going to be kindled against you. Can I say this this morning? We don't need to be deceived in thinking there's many paths to harmony with God. There is, in fact, only one path to harmony with God. There is only one path that can abate the judgment and the wrath of Almighty God. You might say, preacher, I've not done anything to make God mad. Uh, Listen, God's wrath is not just anger. It's not anger like somebody flicked you in the ear and you're mad at Him. What it means is that His holiness has been trespassed against. It means His standard of righteousness has been transgressed. And Christ said to Nicodemus in the book of John that the wrath of God already abides on those that are lost. You might say, preacher, I didn't do anything to make God mad. God doesn't hate you, but I do believe that God, His wrath, His judgment abides upon those that have never believed on Christ. And not only do I believe it, but Christ believes that. That's what He told Nicodemus. He said, listen, you're not waiting to get to heaven and there'll be a big set of scales and old St. Peter's going to pile your good works against your bad works. He said, no, right now, even at this moment, the wrath of God abides on you. The old preacher Jonathan Edwards gave the analogy of a sinner being like a spider dangling from a web over the flames and fires of hell. And at any moment, that last thread of silk could be snapped through and that fire could fall, or that spider could fall into the fire and perish. In the same way, the lost person, he's not waiting to get to heaven to find out how good or bad he is. If he's lost, he's lost without Christ. And he's only a heartbeat or a missed heartbeat away from dying in his sins and going to hell. And no amount of good works, no amount of baptism, no amount of religion, no amount of self-righteousness can answer and address that sin problem. 
We talked about a little bit in Sunday school. Uh, whenever the first sacrifices are given in the Word of God by mankind, you have two different kinds of sacrifices that are given. Abel comes and he brings a sacrifice of the flock. He brings shed blood to present before God. And the Bible says that God had respect unto Abel and his sacrifice. And Cain, he brings the fruit of his own hands. He brings vegetables and, and, and produce that he had grown and labored for. And the Bible says that God did not respect Cain's sacrifice. Uh, the Bible says that Cain's countenance fell, that he was angry, that that his visage changed, that he was displeased with God, that God would dare reject his sacrifice. But here's the reality. God ain't looking for your good works. He never needed your good works. He ain't looking for your righteousness. You have transgressed His holy law. There is a debt that must be paid, and only the blood of Christ can pay that debt. You can get baptized many times till you're waterlogged, and that's not going to save you. The baptism waters can't save you. They're never meant to save you. They're meant to evidence that you've been saved. They're never meant to save you. If you want harmony with God, if you want the war in your soul between you and God to be over, then you've got to come to Christ. He's the one that reconciles us unto God. There's only one path to harmony with God. Then look what it says in verse 17. It says that not only will the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, but He'll shut up the heaven that there be no rain and that the land yield not her fruit. In other words, he was saying, if you turn aside and worship other gods, it's going to make your life miserable. And can I say this to you this morning, that we don't need to be deceived in thinking there's many paths to happiness in life, when in fact there is only one path to happiness in life. There's only one thing that's going to satisfy your soul. There's only one thing that's going to make your life worth living. There's only going to be one thing that's going to lift you out of despair, and that's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and a personal relationship with God through Him. Only by knowing Christ can you find peace and contentment. Peace and contentment is not found in good works. It's not found in self-righteousness. It's found only and singularly through the Lord Jesus. Godliness, Paul said, with contentment is great gain. And I promise you this, Jesus looked at a woman by Jacob's well one day and said this, if you drink of the water that I'll give you, you'll never thirst again. It'll be in you a well of water springing up into life everlasting. She said, give me this water that I may drink. She was miserable. Her life was broken. She had no peace. Jesus said, if you'll come to me, I'll give you water and you won't have to draw anymore. One drink and you'll be satisfied. Happiness is only found through Christ. And then look at the next statement, phrase, in verse number 17. He says, unless ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Now remember, he's talking to an earthly people about earthly matters. He's saying to the Jews, if you turn aside and worship other gods, then I'm not going to keep you in this land. I'll allow the, the wild beasts and I'll allow the, the Gentile and pagan influences and armies to come in and destroy you. But I could not help but notice that word perish. Because my Bible tells me, and you can quote it with me, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not what? Perish but of everlasting life. Christ used the term perish to denote the state of the lost person when they die in their sins and go to hell. He says that's perishing. He didn't describe merely the evacuating of our body, of our soul. But He said when you die, what the book of Revelation calls the second death, when you die in your sins, you die and go to hell. And in that, you truly perish. It's not to say that you cease to exist, but it's to say that you live in a state of perpetual torment and death. And what did the Lord say to Israel? He said, the path that these other gods take you down, that leads to perishing. But the path that I lead you down, it leads to life everlasting. And let me just say simply, we don't need to be deceived in thinking there's many paths to heaven when there's really only one path to heaven. It's God's heaven. You better find out how to get in. If you want to get in my house, you better find out where I keep the key. Amen? It's my house. I don't leave the door unlocked. It ain't Mayberry. Amen? I don't leave the door unlocked. I got it locked up. You can get in, but you're going to have to find out what the key is. In the same way, it's God's heaven. By the way, it has a wall. Walls are immoral. It's got a wall. It's got gates. You better find out how to get into heaven. It's God's heaven. How are you going to get in there? Well, what is the way? Christ said, I'm the way. I'm the way. Not baptism is the way. Not church membership is the way. Not good works is the way. Not trying hard is the way. He said, I'm the way. 
He said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. The only thing that's going to unlock that door, he said, I'm the door to the sheepfold. <laughs> hey, listen, if any man enter in by me, he shall go in and out and find pasture. He said, I'm the shepherd. I'm the Lamb of God. I'm the door. I'm all of it. If you got me, honey, you got everything. But if you don't have me, you don't have anything. The fact of the matter is, there's not many. With the Muslims, if they believe what they say they believe, then they'll die in their sins and go to hell. The Jehovah's Witnesses will die in their sins and go to hell. The Mormons will die in their sins they'll die and go to hell. If a Roman Catholic believes what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, then they'll die in their sins they'll go to hell. You say, are there any saved Roman Catholics? Not good ones. Not good Catholic ones there aren't. They can be saved. Listen, you, you might have been sprinkled when you was a baby. You might have been raised up with a rosary around your neck. And if you're trusting in those things to get you to heaven, you're going to die in your sins and go to hell. You say, can a Catholic be born again? Sure, just like a Baptist can. Somebody say amen there. Say, do they need to be? Sure, like a lot of Baptists do. Uh, but if they're believing what their church teaches, they'll die in their sins. They'll go to hell. I'm saying this, there's only one way to heaven. The Bible's abundantly clear on this. And it's not through the Pope, and it's not through a priest, and it's not through a prophet, but it's through the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. So we need to be cautious. The world tells us there's many ways to heaven when in fact there are not. Turn over with me to the New Testament, to the book of Luke. Luke chapter number 21. And I want to read just one verse for you out of the book of Luke. And I think we really get down to the crux of the matter as it relates to salvation here in Luke chapter number 21. Verse number 8, the Lord's talking about the end times. And He says this to His disciples, Luke chapter 21, verse number 8. He said, take heed that ye be not deceived. We find this phrase again. But be not deceived about what? He says, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. And the Lord says, go ye not after them. Let me say, we don't need to be deceived about the path to heaven. But number two, we don't need to be deceived about the person of Christ. Can I tell you something today? There's a lot of Christ in the world today. And I don't merely mean there's people bearing the name and the moniker Jesus. But I mean there are a lot of different versions of Jesus Christ that are preached in this day that we live in. I jotted down a few of them and I, I sort of described it this way. Let me give you some false Christs that are preached. But, but before I do, let me just make this statement. The Bible says, and Christ is going to begin to talk about the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is an individual. He is an individual that will rise to power and influence during the tribulation period after the church has been raptured out. But listen to what John said about the Antichrist in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He said, little children, it is the last time. So Christ is talking about the last time in Luke chapter 21. John says, it is the last time. We are in the last days. It is the last time, he says. And ye have heard that Antichrist shall come. By the way, so much the covenant theologians say that dispensational prophecy and eschatology began in the 1800s with, uh, with Darby. So much for that. John was preaching about the Antichrist long before the 1800s. And in his day, he said, you've heard the Antichrist is going to come. But he says, now wait a minute. Even now are there many Antichrists. He says, whereby we know that it is the last time. So in other words, there is a singular individual, the Antichrist. That Antichrist will embody the spirit of all that is contrary to the true scriptural person of Jesus Christ. But even in this church age, there are many Antichrists, small a. There are many people that purport to be Jesus Christ. And let me go a step further and say, there are many people that purport to preach a Jesus Christ. But the Christ that they preach is not the Christ of the Bible. Can I give you a few of these false Christs? I, I named them this way. The first is what I'm going to call the spiritual Christ. In other words, they don't believe Jesus was a literal historical figure. They believe that He was a myth, but that we can derive help from this myth and that it's just part of the narrative woven into our social fabric. Can I tell you, this lie didn't start in the last hundred years. Even in the days of the early church, there were people that believed that Christ had not physically, bodily risen from the grave. They believed that Christ was just an allegory, that He was just some spiritual material, but that He was not in actuality the Son of God. God in the flesh. 
In fact, a lot of the new Bibles will either completely remove or they will put a little footnote by the last 12 verses of the book of Mark. And they'll say, well, these verses were not really found in the most ancient of documents. i got a lot I could say about that, but I don't want to keep you here about five hours. But can I just simply say this? The reason that there's an attack on those 12 verses is because they declare plainly the physical bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me make a statement, just to, just to draw a box and stand in it, just to let you know where I stand. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh. I believe He literally lived. I believe He literally lived in the land of Israel. I believe that He literally walked amongst the Jews there in that land. I believe He opened blinded eyes. I believe He gave strength to lame legs. I believe He opened mouths that couldn't speak and ears that couldn't hear. I believe He literally lived. I believe He was alive. I believe in a literal Christ, not a spiritual Christ. But they say, well, he's a myth. He's just sort of a, 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 a an avatar for, for goodwill and good intention and good desires. I don't believe that. I believe he literally lived was God in the flesh. What does the Bible say? John said this about this spirit of Antichrist in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He said, hereby ye know... Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is, he says, that spirit of Antichrist. Where have ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world? Can I address something that I think is a, is, is a common wrong idea that's drawn from this verse? That don't mean that anybody out there that says Jesus is come in the flesh is a servant of God. But in John's day, they were battling the Gnostics. And the Gnostics believed that Jesus was a man, but that Christ, the God part of Christ, if we want to say it that way, descended upon Him at His baptism and abandoned Him before the cross of Calvary. So in other words, they were saying that Jesus was a normal man, but He wasn't God in the flesh, but that God sort of rested upon Him. And that's what John is addressing here. He's not... Listen, there's a lot of heretics out there that say Jesus literally walked in the flesh. That's not the be-all, end-all of doctrinal integrity. But what he's saying is this, if a person purports that Christ is merely a myth, that He never came in the flesh, that He's just a figment of our collective imaginations, he says, that's the spirit of Antichrist. That's not of God. It's not of God. You better run from it like it's on fire, because one day it will be. Uh, This is the spiritual Christ. Let me give you a second one. I believe there's people today preaching the sinful Christ. If the spiritual Christ is a myth, then the sinful Christ is a man of the world. You see this very often. Every few years, they'll dig out some dusty book out of a cave somewhere and claim they found part of the Bible. And inevitably, in these, the Lord Jesus is always presented only His human side, never His divine side. And always the human side that is emphasized is always sinful, carnal, worldly. Now, this is not new to the past hundred years. Even in Christ's day, they accused Him of being a gluttonous and a wine-bibber. But anybody that claims that Christ is just like you and me, that He was just a regular old guy that palled around with, uh, you know, all kinds of unrighteousness, that he'd, he'd want us to compromise our standards to reach the world, that He would understand that the world has just changed and that's okay, that's not the Christ of the Bible. It's not the Christ of the Bible. Uh, Christ was not a man of the world. Christ was not uh, someone that was permissive towards sin. And anybody that believes that the grace of God is a license to sin and to do wrong doesn't understand what the grace of God is. Can I tell you this? The Bible's very clear that Christ knew no sin. In Him was no sin. He did no sin. The book of Hebrews says He was separate from sinners. You say, preacher, He was a friend of publicans and sinners. That's true. He was a friend of publicans and sinners, but He wasn't the publican and the sinner Himself. He didn't partake in their iniquity and their unrighteousness to try to curry and win favor with them. When they saw Him, they said, never a man spake like this. Never a man did what this man did. He's different. Even a lost Roman soldier standing beside a cross could look up and say, truly, this was the Son of God. He didn't live like everybody around Him. And if you think that God's going to save you and allow you to live like the world, then you're not preaching the same Christ that the Bible presents. The sinful Christ... I think not only the spiritual Christ and the sinful Christ, but I hear a lot of people preaching about the social Christ. And he's not necessarily a myth or a man of the world, but here's what he is. He's a martyr for social change. 
A lot of people believe that the reason and intent and extent of the ministry of the Lord was to go about doing good, was to go about merely to help people, was to go about merely to ease their suffering in this world. Now let me tell you something, Christ did a lot to ease people's suffering in this world. There's no question. Uh, The world, uh, in fact, John said this, that if all the things that he did were written, the world couldn't contain the books. But does that tell you something? If it was all about the good works that Christ did, if it was all about Him healing people, Him raising up people, Him raising... If that's what the emphasis was, if that's what it was about, if that was God's intention in sending Him, then wouldn't you think that every single one of those stories would be detailed for us? Wouldn't you think our Bible would be big enough just to fill up this whole room and it would be nothing but instances of Christ healing people and raising the dead? The fact is, Christ came to do more than merely open blinded eyes. Christ came to do more uh, merely than give strength to lame legs. He came to do more merely than to give hearing to deaf ears or speech to dumb mouths. Uh, When He came to this world, it wasn't to the intent that He might socially, radically change this world through social means and effort. He came to this world that He might save sinners. That's what He said Himself. (laughs) He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why He came into the world. Uh, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To dig wells, to buy shoes for people, to fill their bellies, to build, uh, you know, hospital. Is that why He came? What, did, did He come so that He could elevate people out of their poverty? Did He come so that He could push a social agenda? Did He come so that He could put a smile on the face of the world? Why did He come? He came to save sinners, Paul said. He came to save sinners of whom I am chief. Christ did a lot of good things, but the chief and preeminent reason that He came was not to make this world a better place, but it was to save men out of this world and make them better men. It was to change their lives, to save them. There's a lot of people that preach a social Christ. I don't believe that's the Christ of the Bible. And then there's the satanic Christ. That's the man of sin. And let me just offer this quick, gentle word of warning if I can. The world is getting ready for Him. This big push, man, let me tell you something. People make strange bedfellows. You have have sodomites marching beside radical Muslims in parades. Now, in New York City, they'll march together. If they were in Saudi Arabia, that Muslim would be pushing that sodomite off of a roof. But they will march together in a parade. You, you have you have radical communist Marxist feminists that don't really believe in equality of genders, but what they really believe is supremacy of female perspective. And they don't really just want women to have equal rights. What they want is for men to shut up and sit down and quit having a place. That's what they want. They want to destroy the home. They want to annihilate the, the home. They want to destroy... The, the, the harmony in the home. They want to destroy the social and spiritual fabric of their children. They want to raise them up to be confused and to have no idea what plain basic biology declares to be so to them. You have them marching beside radical extremist Muslims. Now, in Saudi Arabia or Iran, that Muslim would be beating her with a cane just for having an opinion or even for not wearing a hijab. It's funny, man. I don't look at this garbage, but on the news you hear about this stuff. And they said that the Sports Illustrated place just had their their first uh, burkini, is what they called it. A burqa attached to a bikini. And if that was to happen in the Muslim world, they would stone her to death for wearing that. Strange bedfellows. Strange bedfellows that it's making in the world today. You say, why is that, preacher? They're getting ready to pull everybody under one big tent. They're getting ready to pull everybody under one big religion. And what you're seeing is you're seeing them for convenience abandon certain things so they can all gather up under one big tent. The world's getting ready for it. Persecution of Christians is at near genocide levels in places in the world. I I don't believe that Roman Catholics are, are Christians by dint of what their church teaches, but you do understand that there were just over 300 Roman Catholics bombed to death in Sri Lanka. I'm saying things are changing. The man of sin is coming. I don't believe he's going to be revealed until after the church is gone. But I sure enough believe the world's getting ready for his appearance on the world stage. There's a lot of false Christs out there. What about the Father's Christ? 
So just because someone says they're preaching Jesus doesn't mean they're preaching Jesus. You might say, well, preacher, how can I know? John said, beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits to see whether they're of God. So how can we know? Well, very simply, we look at what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, and we look at what they say about Jesus Christ, and we ask ourselves, does it line up? Let me give you a few qualities about the Father's Christ. We know about the false Christ, the spiritual Christ, the sinful Christ, the social Christ, the satanic Christ. What about the Father's Christ? What is He like? Well, let me say, number one, He is singular. The Bible says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Anybody that preaches that there are many ways to heaven or anybody that preaches that there are many different Christs is not of God. Don't be deceived by them. Because the Bible teaches there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is singular. He's not what you want Him to be. He's what He declares Himself to be. He's not whatever flavor of Christianity happens to be to your liking. He's what the Bible presents Him to be. He's singular. And that brings me to the second one. He's scriptural. In other words, He's God the Son. He's the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is, in fact, God, robed in flesh, that walked amongst men, that died for our sins, was buried, rose again the third day in power and in glory, and has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. That's who He is. He is 100% human, 100% divine. You say, that the math don't work. It does in God's mind. He is the man Christ Jesus, but He is also God in the flesh. He is exactly who Scripture says Him to be. If anybody declares Him to be anything more or less, then they are a deceiver. He is scriptural. Number three, He's sinless. He's sinless. If Jesus was walking through this world, He wouldn't be sitting down at the bar having a beer with somebody so that He could witness to them. Say, why? Because He hates that person? No, because He hates sin. And so He wouldn't partake in sin so that He could try to reach someone because it doesn't reach people to partake in sin with them. Listen... If sin was an effective means of evangelism, don't you think revival would have done broke out by now? I I mean, don't you think that if Christians compromising, if that was the way to reach people, that the church would just be overstorming everybody right now? When in fact, atheism has now grown to be the largest singular religion in the United States of America. The fact of the matter is, compromise doesn't work. Consecration works. Standards works. Convictions works. Living a separated, sanctified life is what enables us to be a light before the world that's around us. And Christ, He's not sinful. He knew no sin. He did no sin. In Him was no sin. Not only that, He's superlative. There's nobody like Him. He's not one of many. He's not one in a broad scale of various gods. He's the one and only. He's the one and only. The Bible says in the book of Colossians that God has structured things that in all things Christ might have the preeminence. Uh, Paul was walking through Mars Hill one day in Athens and he was beholding all of their gods. And it was a long, long row of different gods. And he walked by, he would have seen the God of war and he would have seen the God of lust. He would have seen the God of greed. He would have seen the God of whatever it was. And he walked by and he sees an altar and it says, to the unknown God. You know, that's how a lot of people are. They don't really have a scriptural understanding about who God is. So they just make Him whoever they want Him to be. And then they say, well, who knows? John Paul walks by. He sees that to the unknown God. He says, hey, they've even got one for my God here. He says, that's my God. The God that you all don't know nothing about. If you knew about this, if this God was known, those gods wouldn't be here. That unknown God, he said, he's the one I'm preaching unto you. And he began to preach the resurrection in Jesus Christ. And he said, if you ever know that God, you'll get rid of these gods. Because you'll recognize that that God, that those gods don't deserve to be within a million miles of that God. That God is the God. He is the only God. Can I say to you that there's none like Him. There's no one. You can't put Him on a, on a scale, on a pedestal alongside anyone else. He's superlative. And let me say this, He's sovereign. He's sovereign. In other words, Christ is not a subordinate. He's the sovereign. He's not a prince. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's not just one in a series. He's one above all. And if you don't own Him as your Lord and Savior, then you'll have no part in Him. He is sovereign. You know what the Bible says? That one of these days, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father.
Can I ask you this question? Have you ever confessed Him as Lord? If you haven't now, you're going to one day. It's a lot better to do it now in grace than to do it then in judgment. Don't be deceived about all these Christs that the world is preaching. You say, how can I know the true one? He's given us His Word. You say, how can I know the true one? Well, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. John says, I don't want you wondering who I'm talking about. So down in verse 14, he says, The Word, He was made flesh and He dwelt amongst us. And we beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You say, how can I know which one's the true Christ? Go to the Word. That'll tell you who Christ is. He is the Word. The Word is Him. You say, preacher, does that mean that he's just merely a metaphor? No, he's not a metaphor. But it means that this Bible and his nature are harmonious. That they are are singular in their spirit and declaration and proclamation. You want to know who the real Christ is? Get in touch with the Christ of the Bible. Learn who he is. Fall in love with him. Fall at his feet. And you know, if you know, the the other day I was reading this, they say that in the ancient banking uh, families in China, that they would give their children from the youngest age different denominations of money for them to play with. And the idea was this, that before we had all of the forensic examination of bills and things like that, they said if they get acquainted with the real thing, they'll know a counterfeit when they handle it. They said if they get acquainted, if they handle those real bills and they, they feel the texture and they feel the weight of it and they see all the patterns, if they get acquainted with the real thing, then they'll know a counterfeit when they see it. You say, preacher, how can I guard myself against a counterfeit Christ? Get to know the real thing. And you don't have to worry about the counterfeit. I had five, but I think you and I both know we ain't going to make it through five this morning. Can I give you one more? And then I'll give the other two tonight if you'll come back. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to see one more before we close. I believe this is of the Lord anyway. Every preacher says that when they preach too long. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Be not deceived concerning the path to heaven. It's only one path to heaven. Only one path to harmony with God, to happiness in life, and to heaven above. Don't be deceived about the person of Christ. There's a lot of false Christ. You, you get in your Bible and get to know the Father's Christ. Get to know Him. He's the only one that can take you to heaven. But finally, let me say this. Be not deceived. Well, let's look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul says, Know ye not that unrighteousness shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, he says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. He says, and such were some of you. But ye are washed, he says. Ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Let me say, as one final thought this morning, be not deceived concerning the proof of a changed life. There's a lot of people that are going to tell you today that you can have your cake and eat it too. That you can be a Christian and live any way that you want. Let me tell you something. Me being a Christian is not dependent upon me keeping a bunch of rules or keeping all my promises. I don't believe that my works get me saved. I don't believe my works keep me saved. I don't believe my works make me better saved. I don't believe that God needs my faith and my works. But I do believe this, that the kind of faith that is saving faith is a faith that works. And I believe that if any man be in Christ, he'll be a new creature. I believe that old things will be passed away. I believe all things will become new. And I believe, and you can see it in the testimony of Scripture over and over and over again, that whenever God saved a man, He always changed him. Always changed him. Let me notice two things about this and I'll be done. According to our text, Paul is writing to a local church, presumably of saved people. And he makes that presumption too. Because he says, listen, don't be deceived about this. And he goes down a big laundry list of what unrighteousness looks like. And he says, folks like that, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. He doesn't say quit doing these things and you will inherit the kingdom of God. Never once does he say that. You know, it's interesting. A rich young ruler came to Jesus one time and he asked him a very specific question. He says, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? When you inherit something, it's owed to you, right? 
It is your lot. It is your inheritance. And the ruler said, what do I have to do to earn eternal life? And Christ said, well, that's easy. Keep the law. Every bit of it. Keep every bit of the law. Never sin. Never do wrong. Never do unrighteously. And you'll earn a spot by your own good works and good merit to heaven. The young man lied to him. He said, all these have I kept from my youth up. Now, that wasn't true. I know it wasn't true. I know he was lying because he just told a lie. Now, that's a little bit of circular reasoning, but I believe it checks out in the Word of God. Amen? I I can tell you he was a liar because he was lying right then. How do I know he was lying right then? Well, he had to be a liar because he just told a lie. Amen? You'll untangle that about halfway home. So how do you know? Well, if there's a perfect person, I sure ain't never met one except the Lord Jesus Christ. I ain't never met one. People say, well, I never sin. Well, let's talk to your spouse about that. See, the reality is this. People that claim they never sin, that's a farce. And they're bluffing. Because at the end of the day, they know they sin. We know we sin. If there's anything that we are convinced of by sheer observation in this world, it's that all men are sinners. The Bible says very clearly, if any man say he hath no sin, he lies, doeth not the truth, he's deceived himself, John said. The Bible says all of sin comes short of the glory of God. I don't care who you are, we're all sinners. Every single one of us. He lied, he said, I've kept all these from my youth up. So Christ says, well, if you wanted to earn it, that was how you were going to earn it, but evidently you're not going to be honest with me. So he says, let me tell you how else you can get it. One thing thou lackest, sell what thou hast, give to the poor, take up thy cross, follow me. Now, a lot of people say, well, preacher, he's saying that he has to give to charity or he has to live a life of self-denial in order to get to heaven. No, that's not what the Lord said. He said one thing thou lackest. His riches were not something he lacked. They were something he possessed. The problem is this. His riches were in the way of him getting what he lacked. He wouldn't come to Jesus because he didn't have to. He had a big old fat bank account. He had everything he needed. He was all right, man. He was good. He was righteous. He he, he was a good person. He had power. He had influence. He had prosperity. He didn't need Jesus. And so Jesus says, I'll tell you what, you sell all those riches, get your eyes off those, you're going to find out you need some things. What he lacked was not his riches. He had his riches. What he lacked is mentioned later on. He says, sell all that thou hast and give to the poor. Then he says this, take up the cross and follow me. What he lacked was not riches, he had riches. What he lacked was the cross. That, that rich young ruler said, how can I earn and inherit eternal life? He says, be perfect. Fellow says, I am. Jesus says, I, I can see we're not having a serious conversation then. You ain't serious about this. If you were, you'd be being honest with me. But since you're not going to be honest, let me tell you how a broken, sin-plagued, sin-sick man can get eternal life. Here's how. Get rid of whatever you think is going to get you to heaven, whatever you're depending on, whatever you're leaning on, whatever crutch you think makes you good. Get rid of that and then run to the cross. And the cross is what you're missing in your life. You get the cross, it'll get you there. The fact is, what he was lacking was the cross of Calvary. A lot of people will say, well, you can have your cake and eat it too. They'll say, you can live any old way you want. Paul is not saying here that if you'll do good works, it'll get you to heaven. We know that because of verse number 11. He says this, such were some of you. He says, I'm not saying you are this, now quit doing it to get to heaven. He's saying, that was what you used to be. Such were some of you. What happened to him? They got washed. They got sanctified. They got justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. The old timers would say it this way, they got shown up, born again. And that changed their life. What is Paul saying here? He's saying this, that a changed life is evidence of the new birth. You used to be this, but when you got saved, God changed you. So don't go thinking now, if God went to the level of changing you after He saved you, don't think that the old way of living is compatible with the new way of living. It's not. And that tells me this, listen carefully, I want to say it just right. Because a changed life is evidence of the new birth, because of that, therefore, a changed life is essential to the new birth. It's not to suggest that we need to turn over a new leaf and then God will save us. God's message is this, you done run out of leaves, branches, and stumps. You ain't got nothing else to try. Quit trying to turn over a new leaf. You don't need a new leaf, you need a new life. He's not saying you need to start doing better and then I'll fix you. 
He's saying, come to terms with the fact that you can't fix you, that you can't do better, and I'll save you, and then I'll fix you. Tells me this, that when a person is born again, it it is an incontrovertible fact that they will never again be the same. I say, preacher, I know a lot of Christians that have backslid. No, me too. A lot of them. I I know a lot of Christians that they're going to get to heaven, but it sure enough don't look like it on this side of glory. And were it not for the blood of Christ, they wouldn't get there. Can I say this? Were it not for the blood of Christ, I wouldn't get there. I don't always live like I'm saved. But I sure can't live like I did when I was lost either. When I was lost, I could sin and it didn't bother me. Can't do that anymore. When I was lost, I didn't have no fellowship with God and that didn't upset me. That didn't bother me a bit. When I was lost, I, I, I was, I was on drugs growing up, man. Every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, I was drugged to church, amen. So I had, I had, I had religion, but I didn't have a relationship with God. That didn't bother me before I was saved. Now, yeah, I can sin if I want to, but the Holy Ghost is sure going to let me know when I have. I, I, listen, I, I could lay out a church if I wanted to, but God's going to remind me that there's something missing in my life when I'm not in fellowship with His people. I, I don't have to pray, but I sure get to missing Him when I don't pray. I'm saying this, I don't always live like I'm saved, but I sure can't live like I'm lost either. I sure can't live like I did before because a change has been made. God's done something in me that is irreversible and eternal. And now I've got the Holy Ghost living inside of me. And I may live in sin, but I'm not going to do it happily. I may live in sin, but I'm not going to do it in peace. I'm going to have to do it against the direct instruction, rebuke, and conviction of the Spirit of God. Don't think for one moment. Be not deceived in thinking that God's going to save somebody and not make any change in their life. A person can say that they believed on the Lord and at the end of the day it's between them and God. You know that and I know that. But how do we see if there's any evidence? Well, God will change their life. Listen, they'll either be happy in righteousness or they'll be miserable in unrighteousness, but they'll never be the same. When God saved Paul, He changed everything about him. Paul didn't always do right. When he did wrong, the Lord chastened him. Every son whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. He scourgeth every one of his. You may sin, you may do unrighteously, but God's going to let you know you have. He's going to deal with you. He's going to convict you. He's going to chasten you. And don't think for one moment that, a, that salvation is merely an intellectual ascendance, an intellectual acquiescence to a, to a list of facts or to a doctrinal treaty. You make no mistake, salvation is nothing short of the bending of our will to God's will of the submitting of our will to God's will, of the breaking of us, that God can wrap us back up and make us whole again. If a person thinks they're getting to heaven through their baptism, through their righteousness, through their church membership, then they don't believe they're getting there through the finished work of Christ and Him alone. When God saves a man, He doesn't save him so that he can take a place on his mantle beside his other false gods. He saves him that those idols might be torn down, that his life might be radically transformed and changed, and that He might be forever and eternally changed and converted into a child of God. Don't think for one moment. If somebody preaches a salvation where a person comes along, prays it, and listen, when I got saved, I prayed a prayer. I did. This is how I prayed. I said, Lord, I don't want to go to hell. And I'm a sinner, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me and save me. I prayed a prayer. I don't think it's wrong to pray a prayer when you're saved. But there's people all over the world that pray prayers. That don't get you to heaven. What gets you to heaven is the breaking of your will, the surrendering of yourself, the cessation of dependence upon anything but Jesus Christ and placing your faith and trust fully in Him to say, Lord, do for me what I can't do for myself. Anything other than that is a false gospel. Anything other than that we ought to pronounce anathema upon. Anything other than that is not the gospel of the Word of God. God comes to change men's lives, to save them for eternity and for time, and to transform them into the image of Christ.